On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Nick Elam. Dr. Elam is a professor at Ball State University. He's also a Mensa member, and he's the creator of the Elam ending. Um, Dr. Elam will go into the details of the Elam ending, but it's a new way to end basketball games. I think it's a genius idea. I first heard about it through my friend Mitch Johnson, and I fell in love with it instantly. Um, the basketball tournament adopted it, and after watching it, I'm all in on the Elam ending. So enjoy the episode. Go Army, beat Navy. But first, boy, ASAP Rocky. The weather cold, the weather so chill, chilly, willy, penguin, feather road. Cause I'm sipping pro, yeah, that met this pro. Pro met the zine, yeah, stepping stone. Oh, they acting up, get your weapons wrong. They only killing time, another second gone. I heard your man at home, now you melatonin. But you acting young, and you hella grown. Hey, Nick, how's it going? How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Actually, it's been an exciting day. I found out earlier that, because uh, I had presented at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in 2018, Okay. And about the Elam ending, I found out today that uh, I'll be back in 2019. So, <laughs> Wow, that's great news. We're actually going to the Sloan Conference this year, so that's awesome. Great news to hear. Congratulations. Oh, great. Well, hey, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love it if you came to my presentation. Uh, oh, but what we'll you do, hopefully we could, could meet up. Maybe we could get a beer or something and watch a game. Oh, absolutely. That's awesome. How was That'd the, be uh, great. Yeah, how was the conference last year? It was cool. Um so let's see. It's a Friday, Saturday, and I presented on Saturday. So I went there on and went to lots of different stuff on Friday. But on Friday, they actually had uh, President Obama there for mm-hmm. uh, for mm-hmm. a talk, and so that was really cool. A lot of a lot of security, but because I was a presenter, like I got to go into the the room. There's probably five thousand people in this in this huge room, but I got to like eighth row center for that for wow. that so that was really cool and and uh i'll have a keepsake for for all time where you know it's got my dumb name on like page <laughs> six of this uh <laughs> and, uh, and it's got you know a president's name you know on another page earlier in the program right. uh, something i'll cherish forever do you think you can kind of give us a breakdown for the listeners out there that don't know the elam ending what it is and how you got to it yeah yeah so I've been a lifelong basketball fan, and so it's it's kind of it's disheartening to me that so often the quality of play deteriorates down the stretch of games where we see uh, the leading team stall and play very passively. We see the trailing team foul and hand away free points when they're on defense. They have to rush and force up ugly shots when they're on offense. That whole combination of factors makes the outcome of games very predictable because uh, – even late comebacks from even really slim deficits are hard to complete. And uh, so really we get a lot of good games and big games that kind of fade out with the whimper. And so the concept in a nutshell is just that you would play the Elam ending concept is just that you would play most of each game with a game clock and then play the final stretch without a clock now. And, and that would address each of these concerns. So, when you say you're going to play most of the game with the clock and play the last part without a clock, that begs two questions right off the top, which is, well, when do you shut off the clock and what do you mm-hmm. play to? So this is all 
written in pencil at this point, but I think a good place to shut off the clock for college basketball would be at the under four minute mark for the NBA to shut it off at the under three minute mark. There's a few reasons for that. One is that uh, that's around the time, especially in college basketball, that's around the time where you would start start to see a team with a medium-sized lead really start to slow down, play passively, and manipulate the clock. It also happens to be the last media timeout at each of those levels of play, so that makes for a good time to transition. And you really don't see the most serious flaws like the fouling and the rushing until the final minute, but you can't wait too long to shut off the clock or you're still going to run into the same problem. So you have to build in kind of an untimed cushion. And I think that four minute mark or that three minute mark is the way to go. So then, you know, and I'll, and I'll use college basketball just because the math works out a little bit better. But if we're going to cut out four minutes of a 40 minute game, we're essentially cutting out 10 percent of the game. We need to add 10 percent of it back. And so uh, you look at scoring rates in college basketball, it's about 70 points per team per game and 10 percent of 70 is seven. And so that's where plus seven comes in. So. Okay. For, for college basketball, yeah, you would play just a normal game all the way until you get to that uh, four-minute mark, the first stoppage under four in the second half. You shut off the clock, and then you would play to a target score without a clock uh, equal to the leading team score plus seven. So an example would be if uh, you get to that mark and it's 65-60, and uh, so then you would shut off the clock. You play into 72 without a clock. First team to 72 wins. And the idea is, is that Okay, if you've got the lead, uh, there's no incentive to stall. You've got to keep playing assertively to try to get to 72. If you're behind, you don't have to foul and hand away free points. You don't have to rush. You can still get your play your best offense and get your best looks. That whole combination of factors is going to make the outcome of the game uh, less predictable. There's more chance of a comeback. And you're guaranteed that the game's going to end with the swoosh of a net. And so you're going to get more uh, memorable game ending moment. So that that's uh, the most <laughs> I'm still looking for the most succinct way to mm-hmm. uh, explain the idea. But that's that's the concept right there. Okay. For sure, because of, especially I think the biggest stage I've seen it on of any stage is with the basketball tournament and with the basketball tournament. And then feedback you got from articles from the ringer to ESPN, Zach Lowe and things like that. I know a lot of people have heard of it. I was just wondering what kind of feedback you've received from it from the collegiate level, from the NBA, because with Sloan, I know that's a high visibility place. Like what kind of feedback you've heard at each level? Yeah. So one thing I'm really excited about is I I think the idea is ahead of schedule because I I really thought that at this early stage of implementation, Mm -hmm. I thought the ratio of positive feedback to critical feedback would not be as good as it is already. So I've been pleased uh, with that. Uh, some, you know, some people have actually gone on the record to praise the idea. Daryl Morey, general manager, right. Houston, said he, he likes the idea. Um, during TBT play, uh, the you know broadcasters on the air, very familiar broadcasters, really just kind mm-hmm. of uh, raving about the idea. Um, so that, that was great to hear that. I actually know of uh, prominent NBA players who really like the idea, but they haven't, um, you know, they haven't gone on the record anywhere. And I don't, uh, you know, I don't want to betray their confidence. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that, 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 that's always a big thrill when I hear, Oh, like he likes it. Like that, that's right. really, and so again, I'm just pleased by the open mindedness and, uh, you know, hearing positive things from all different sorts of stakeholders. That includes, officials, uh, coaches, organizers of different rec leagues, 
Um, and then, you know, TBT organizers themselves, because they're the ones who are really uh, taking a chance on the idea. So for them to like it and want to continue using it, that's, um, that's the best endorsement it can get. Okay. And what did you think of this? Were you watching a basketball game? And how long did it take to kind of get the ball rolling with this in day? <laughs> so was it a long process? It was, a, it was a long process. And, you know, this isn't like a well, this isn't, I was going to say, it's not really a full-time or part, it's not even a part-time job. It's, it's yeah. not even a job. It's just kind of this uh, independent project, I guess right. you would say. Um, so, you know, the first time I ever really remember, uh, like, talking about the fouling phenomenon, I was just hanging out with my housemates when I was a senior at the University of Dayton. Uh, this is back in 2004. We're just watching, like, NCAA tournament play and mm-hmm. this thing. We're all big sports fans. And, so we had seen hundreds of games like this before where it gets to that fouling stretch. And, and we're just like, you know, this is just weird how, you know, the game just totally changes. Um, and it's, you know, just kind of a totally different game. And it's frankly kind of an inferior brand of basketball. And so we're kind of tossing around ideas for, well, how could you fix that? And they were kind of the same ideas you still hear sometimes now, that which really would not work, where we would say, well, okay, if you want to discourage fouling, then – uh, you just punish the fouling team more harshly. Uh, you know, give give the foul team the option of taking the ball out of bounds or something like that. But the problem with that is that you're taking that fouling option, which really isn't a very good option as it is, and making it even less appealing for the trailing team and still not giving them a better alternative. So any anything that's built around just punishing fouling more it won't work. So we didn't have any good ideas at that time. But I remember the day, it was 2007, I was watching, uh, you know, we'd all moved on with our lives at that point, but uh, <laughs> I'm watching some conference tournament action. Was, I remember the game, it was uh, Virginia Tech and North Carolina State. It's one of those games where, you know, it's it's a tight, intense game all the way through, and then you get to the final stretch, and uh, Virginia Tech has to just foul possession after possessions, and it's still a relatively close game when you just look at the score. But the you know the air just totally goes out of the arena. Mm-hmm. You know there's not going to be a comeback because now they have to just hand away free points, and uh, you know it's just kind of an unsatisfying way to end the game, and it just you know, just fades out with a whimper. So, but that that's when it dawned on me like, oh, well, I wonder. You know, all these all these issues are attributable to the clock. Everybody's trying to manipulate the clock, and maybe if you just got rid of the clock. Um, maybe these issues would go away. So, you know, then I had to flesh out the idea and really try to think of it from every angle, you know, what, you know, try to think of it like a a critic of the idea would and try to examine the soundness of it, the necessity of it. And I came to believe in the idea more and more and, and, and pitch it around to different people. And, um, you know, I would get, thoughtful feedback and a lot of cases positive feedback but mm-hmm. people would always tell me that you're, you're kind of up against the you know it's a tough challenge here because these kinds of changes don't just don't happen overnight right uh, but but nobody you know even nobody could tell me a reason why it wouldn't work basically okay. so that's why because I, I was always looking for what what's the fatal flaw here because right. if, if i did it then hey i'll just move on to something else but i could never and still to this day I don't see what the fatal flaw in the idea is, and so I've continued to pursue it. And it was, uh, you know, twenty late twenty sixteen when I reached out. I was kind of making another round of contacts to uh, semi pro leagues and events, uh, and reached out to TBT. And they said their their initial response just uh, within 
probably 24 hours of me sending my argument for the idea uh, was that they were, they thought it was brilliant. They thought it was fascinating. And so we kept in touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they discussed implementing the idea. They, they came back to me in the spring of 2017 and said, Hey, we're going to do this. And we want to attach your name to it. Cause they, they were the ones who named it the Elam ending. Um, right. and then they rolled it out on a partial basis in 2017 and liked it yeah. enough to, to roll down on a full basis in 2018. I guess my question, because I know most of the motivation is behind just the entertainment of the game, but when we just think about like what make Michael Jordan great, everybody always goes to the pictures of the last second shots and things, things of that nature. And what do you say to a basketball purist that you take away those moments? So, uh, so I like that you mentioned basketball purists. One thing that's really interesting is that there has not been. Um, kind of a, uh, a, a a real demographic so far that has emerged of who likes it and who doesn't. You know, sometimes in sports you can kind of really right. tell, like the old school, new school. Here, like uh, I think people are still trying to figure out, and that, that includes me. Like, is this really kind of a newfangled idea, mm-hmm. or is this really kind of an old school idea? Uh, mm-hmm. To just to get rid of the clock and that you're playing, uh, you know, it's just us against you, and there's no electronic third party to to bail anybody out or to manipulate. Uh, I think there's kind of a, a pure quality to it. So what you mentioned there, you, you talk about, uh, you know, Michael Jordan shot, uh, and uh, you know, you could go with a lot of other memorable mm-hmm. shots. So I hear those arguments. I think if if you're going to go that route and make that argument, I think to be fair, there's three steps to it. And most of the time when I hear those counter arguments, there's only the first step that goes. So, so the three, the three steps are for one, you talk about some of the great finishes that there have been mm-hmm. in basketball history. So I hear that from critics and, and okay, that that's something to lay out there. Absolutely. But one thing, but then the second step, which I don't hear enough of to make a really a fair argument. I don't hear, um, you know, a real thought about, well, let's look at the same game and think about how it would have played out under the Elam ending. And I think there's a great mm-hmm. chance that for many of those games, we would have still had a very thrilling finish to the same game. And then the third step of that process, which, which I also do not hear is that, Okay, well, let's look at a lot of games throughout basketball history, big games and good games that have just faded completely from memory because mm-hmm. they didn't end with the buzzer beater. And I think those games could be greatly enhanced. So I think I, I truly believe um, that the eliminating is a way that we can keep and enhance all the things that we really enjoy about late game play mm-hmm. and eliminate or alleviate all the things that we don't enjoy. Uh, for me, when I first started this again, back in 2007, that was one of the first things I, I thought of as well. Okay, let's think about what we might be losing here. Let's think about buzzer beaters and how often they happen. And I had a, I had a misconception that they happen more often than they do. Um, and so after you know doing this research and looking at thousands of games, it's been striking to me to see that really only about 1% of games ends with a, buzzer beater. a meaningful made shot. Yeah. Wow. And so, and even in those, some of those games, you think about games where, uh, where the buzzer beater comes in a tie game. So an example would be like the 2016 NCAA championship, 
uh, Villanova and North, North Carolina. Carolina. Uh, yeah, Chris Jenkins hits a shot at the buzzer, right. and that's a that was a great moment. I will always remember that. Right. Now that shot came in a tie game, so you think about what was at stake there. So if he makes the shot, uh, which he did, then Villanova wins right then and there. And mm-hmm. if he misses the shot, well, okay, everybody gets to settle in for overtime. Right. Know? gets back to that same level of excitement. More often than not, overtime periods do not go down to the buzzer. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about, well, okay, let's say we're just playing to a target score and we get, we're going to have many games that come down to kind of a sudden death situation like that. And you know, in that case, if you make the shot, you win right then and there. But if you miss the shot, you don't get to settle in for anything. Right. You got to go back yeah. and play defense. And play defense for your life because the game could end on the very next possession. So I think it can even enhance some of those scenario so really what we're left with is just kind of a like a fraction of a percent of games that ends with a true do or die buzzer beater uh do or die meaning that the team that that makes the shot at the buzzer was trailing at the time that they released the shot and those are really cool there's no doubt about it but even in in those cases what we get most of the time what what should finally you know we finally get all the things to align just right we should get this totally uh, uninhibited celebration what we get instead is officials running out on the court uh, blowing their whistles, waving their arms, and they're just doing the job. Mm-hmm. And saying, everybody got to stop celebrating, go back to your right. bench, got to go to the monitor and make sure that the shot was yeah. right. So, even in those, you kind of get that buzz kill, mm-hmm. um, you know, all attributable to the clock. So, I, I truly believe that, uh, you know, if you really just um, envision what, uh, you know, game seven or uh, NBA champ or, uh, you know, NBA championship or NCAA championship game, coming down to the wire, coming down to a sudden death situation, I think those those kinds of situations would be uh, just as thrilling, if not more thrilling, than a lot of these buzzer beater situations because uh, both teams would be able to still play at their best. Uh, mm-hmm. Currently, the, the clock uh, kind of does a lot of the heavy lifting and forces the offense into some you know ugly shot that, that we would never see at any other time of the game, and here it's coming at the most – important possession of the game and i think there's something a little unsatisfying about that i I agree completely do you think if team if the league was were to go to the elam ending would coaches be more involved with late game play calling how would that affect kind of the late game situations i think i think coaches would love it um Mm -hmm. because there's kind of just a rote uh standard strategy if you even want to call it a strategy now because you don't really have a choice that you know once games enter a uh, certain a uh, certain stage, you know what you have to do on offense. You're just going to foul, give it, to, or you're just going to stall. I mean, and give it to your best free throw shooters. If you're right. on, if you're trailing, you got to foul. You got to chuck threes. Um, you know, big men really aren't involved very much in the in those final stretches. But with this, coaches would still have their full complement of plays and players. Yep. And I think I think it's a coach's dream, honestly. Yeah, I know at the beginning you said it's probably more applicable just how the numbers work out the college as opposed to the NBA. But again, I don't have any real numbers to support it. But it seems as though you can get a lot of college guys to kind of choke up in the end and miss those free throws. And it keeps the drama going a little bit more. So I, I definitely see how the math works out. But do you think it would actually tarnish the college game a little bit more than the NBA? Because even with those fouls, it's a little less predictable whether or not they're going to make the actual free throws. So so great. That's a great question. And um, while I'm looking here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to answer your question while I'm looking up some numbers, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but... Um, so I'm going to do the, do my best to do two things at once here, but 
Um, so I do, I do think that actually this would be a better fit for college than mm -hmm. the NBA. One reason for that is that we see the fouling phenomenon more in college than we do in NBA. Uh, you know, again, I've tracked thousands of games and what it's turning out to be is that about 58% of games we see teams resort to fouling in college basketball and then about 44% of games we see teams resort to that in the NBA. Now, most of the games we don't see the fouling, it's because the trailing team just gives up and they don't even bother with fouling. Yeah. It's not such mm -hmm. a either. But um, so we see the fouling a little bit more. Um, we see stalling a little bit more just because there's a, a longer shot clock. And but when you talk about the effectiveness, I used to think also before I really dove into this that uh, yeah that that we see more of those uh, chokes in college, but. What I found, and in those games where we we have um, where we see this, where we see the fouling, and I was able to find my numbers here. So in the NBA, um, there's, it's been it's worked out to be about one percent of games where if there's one team that resorts to fouling, that that team actually wins the game. Wow. In basketball, that though it's only about one point three percent of the time. Oh yeah. Wow. So it's, so it's slightly more effective, but mm, still not I mean, much. Yeah, at all. once a team has to resort to fouling, they're pretty much they're they're in big trouble. Yeah. Now, the thing that helps, I think, I think a couple reasons why it does work maybe just slightly better in college basketball is, uh, like you said, the the free throw shooting is not at the same quality, and also they have the uh, one and one in college. Yeah, really punishes a team for not making that front end. Now, I've heard discussions that. College basketball, you know, women's college basketball has already done this. I think men will follow soon too. That they're going to go to quarters and get rid of the one and one yeah. happens, and that's going to make that fouling strategy even less effective. So, again, I think uh, I think it's a good fit for NBA. I think it's an even better fit for college basketball, and I think it's an even better fit than that for say like high school basketball, where in many levels they don't have a shot clock at all. So you really yeah. right. Uh, teams get desperate in that situation i know that the deal experience with uh, a bunch of new rules before they implement to the nba can you see that see this kind of starting with the g league and kind of evolving from there i know kiki vandaway's kind of mentioned it but it's been more of a radical idea i mean do you see the g league kind of adapting this and putting into i think play? that would be a, i think that would be a great testing right. ground if I, if I got a vote i would vote for you know right now but uh so i might not be the right person to ask <laughs> I don't get a vote, but, but yeah, I think, you know, ultimately I would love to see this at the highest levels of play, NBA, WNBA, NCAA mm -hmm. division one and the Olympics. I would love to see that, but it's not going to happen overnight to go to those right. levels. It's going to have to continue to be tested at other levels and kind of grow. Uh, just like you mentioned at levels like the G league or the summer league or at, uh, like for college basketball, like postseason tournaments, not other than the NCAA tournament, use those as testing grounds, NIT, CBI, CIT, things like that. Um, different international leagues, I think, would be a great testing ground, things like that. And, uh, you know, in, in 2019, uh, there's another semi-pro league called the East Coast Basketball League that's going to adopt the ELAM ending on a partial basis. And so, wow. you know, it's it's always uh, what I consider people, – people have asked me, well, what do I consider – success at this point and mm -hmm. to me it's just to always have some way to move this initiative forward and mm -hmm. so another league coming along and adopting it in 2019 
that means it's going to be farther along in 2019 than it was and it was farther along in 2018 than it was in 2017 so it's just moving forward and and to me that's uh that's really cool and i think it just has to continue to to prove its merit at those other levels before uh, we would ever see it at the highest levels sure yeah and is there a game that stands out to you in the nba or college basketball that you kind of watch and think damn this game would have been 10 times better if we use this elam ending um so yeah i I do i do think of that a lot um i'm gonna i could go to a lot of different examples here Mm -hmm. but i'm gonna go with and i know i know i've kind of kept going to college basketball examples but um you know I'm, i'm just as passionate about nba play but i'll I'll go with one more college basketball example here and that is um we saw in the 2018 tournament you know for the first time ever we saw a 16 seed beat a one seed Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. umbc beat uh virginia and it happened in pretty shocking fashion where they won by 20 points Uh, that that blew everybody away now so if if we were to have the elam ending i don't think that virginia would have come back i think it's very likely that UMBC would have still won by 20 points or so. But what we would have gotten is the guarantee that the game would have ended with the swish of a net. And so we think about that game, which is we, we've talked about that our whole lives. Is we, when are we finally going to see uh, 16 beat a one? And here, here we finally saw it. And now that it's happened, I, I cannot personally, and I'm sure many diehard basketball fans cannot remember one specific play mm. or scenario from that historic game and if we were to have the elam ending then we would at least be able to say hey even though it's a 20 point game that's the moment right there that layup that three-pointer or whatever it happened to be that that's the defining moment when a six finally beat a one a a historic moment for basketball that would carry on forever but but without it you know the game just completely fades from memory really we Mm -hmm. remember we remember the accomplishment but we can't Really, that moment one thing you know that happened yeah that's such a because i think about the elam ending i think about that kansas memphis game i think it was back in 2008 um when memphis kept missing those free throws and kansas was able to come back i mean with the elam ending there does memphis and coach cal and Derek rose have another national championship to them uh yeah, yeah it's 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 great to uh play out games like that you right. just never know what is what might happen and so that was a uh, thrilling finish to the second half. Mm-hmm. But then one thing that we, again, that we get a lot is, okay, a game um, goes on to overtime and then it ends in relatively ordinary fashion. And that right. game is a great example of a game where the overtime could not live up to the yeah. end of the half. And, and that happens more often than, than I thought initially. And really, because that, that's one thing I've tracked is, well, how – how often do buzz or do uh, overtime periods go down to the buzzer and kind right. of match up with that with the period that preceded it? And it's very it's it's relatively rare. Mm-hmm. And so um, so yeah, it's just, it's just interesting to to think about about uh, how those games yeah. will play out. Yeah, because I'm looking at the box score right now. Kansas ended up winning seventy five to sixty eight. Memphis only scored five points in overtime. Yeah, and by they they tried fouling in the overtime, and they mm-hmm. they didn't gain any ground. And by the end of the game, right. they had actually uh, just they had actually given up, and they actually conceded mm-hmm. the game. Think about that, where they just right. waved the white flag in the national championship game. You just you stopped trying to win, so the, the game actually ended with uh, I think it was Sharon Collins for Kansas just just dribbling out the clock, and uh, you know that's uh, 
a very forgettable way to to end a game that should have had uh, a thrilling finish to it. I have one more question for you before we wrap this up. Um, have you thought about the effects that this can have in Vegas with the NBA and college lines, um, with the toters over and under and the spread? Will that have Will this? Could this have an effect to those lines and kind of flip, not flip Vegas, but change how sports betting is for basketball? I think Vegas should love the Elam mm-hmm. uh, for a couple reasons. One, just very generally, is that you know Vegas always finds some way to stay one step ahead of the betting public, and you know that's how they stay in business. And so, changing mm-hmm. the format like this would just give them one more way to to stay ahead of of betters. But more specifically, you know, again, this phenomenon that's associated with the Elam ending, where every game is going to end with the switch of a net, I think this introduces um, a real fascination, and I think people would really get in. There, there would be a lot of people getting into prop bets, where mm. just, you know, if they have nothing else to bet on, all right, uh, the game's coming down near the end. I'm going to bet on who's going to make the winning shot and what type of shot it's going to be. And you know, I'll throw I'll throw five bucks on it. Hey, this game's going to end on a LeBron James dunk, and maybe I can win a hundred right. bucks. Yeah. And so, you know, prop bets are really kind of. They're known as sucker bets, and that's how uh, Vegas makes a lot of money off of that. But people would, would have fun playing along with that, um, you know, throwing a couple bucks down, seeing if they can predict the game-winning shot. And I think Vegas would really cash in on that, and people would have fun playing along. Yeah, I think that would be – I like that. Yeah. From our end, I think that's it. Uh, don't want to take too much of your time, so we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, no, you've on this been podcast. fantastic. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, absolutely. All right. Killing, you got anything? No, just thank you, and we're definitely trying to take you up on that beer at Slum. <laughs> Sounds great. All right, thank you. Yeah, you want to lay the hands on me, yeah. But he should see the way she dance on me, yeah. Wishing I ain't had no pants on me, yeah. <laughs>